Namo tassa bhagavato arahanto sama sambo dasa. Blessed in homage to the Holy One, the Enlightened One. So I'd like to um, talk tonight, and I'm going to start off with a, a poem by Hafiz. He says, now that all you worry has proved to be such an unlucrative business, why not find a better job? <laughs> why not find a better job? If it was only that easy. I want to, you know, just first just uh, acknowledge um, Just the beautiful tenderness and heart and courage uh, that's here in this room brought you here. I know all of us, uh, and Howie and I, just just so moved with um, the sincerity of your practice and willingness to open and feel into your hearts. And it's not easy. I just, we just want to really acknowledge this. It's such a privilege and an honor to practice together and to feel our humanness. And, you know, if we got 85 people in San Francisco or Berkeley or San Jose or Tulsa, and we put them in a circle, and if we really began to talk, we would hear something very similar. What brings us here is our human condition. And perhaps what's really extraordinary is your willingness to come here and to look deeply into the human condition, into our hearts. Many bows to all of you, to all of us. This morning I was delighted where the questioning was going and it finally got to the question that we all kind of stopped our breath for a moment. Who am I? We got to that. And then there's, there's not much to say. <laughs> Who are we without our stories? Don't I define myself by the story that I have constructed through my years of living? There's an interesting uh, piece of prose here by Rod McLaver that speaks about why do we exist. I'd like to share this with you. Why do we exist? Fifty trillion cells make up the human body, and each of these cells in turn consists of atoms, countless millions or billions of them, depending on the function of the specific cell. And the atoms? They consist mostly of empty space, protons and neutrons surrounded by electrons. Empty space, just as the universe is mostly empty space. The human body, this entity of mostly empty space, is space held together, space unified, even if for only a little while, by a life force. The atoms that existed uh, in the body before this human body, and they'll exist after this life is gone. But in the meantime, in this short interval, the atoms are held together by an indescribable and unknowable force, the empty space. Who are we? That has been one of the perennial, profound spiritual questions of the ages. And it's a very powerful question to begin to ask ourselves. And I'd like to share with you a little bit personally about my own journey that actually began when I was four years old, funny enough. I was riding in the back seat of my parents' car, and my parents were talking. We were going to go visit my grandma. And I'm not sure what the conversation was about. I don't even recall what the conversation was about that my parents were having or with me. But all of a sudden, I had this realization that I and everyone else was going to die 
and that it could happen at any moment. And it really shook me up. My life before four, <laughs> it's been a wreck ever since. I feel like a Woody Allen movie here. But at that moment, I realized that death could indeed come at any moment, to anyone at any time. And it was really, it was one of those just moments where my world stopped. And I remember asking my mommy and daddy about this, and they said to me very lovingly and very caringly, don't worry, Bobby. I was called Bobby in those days. Don't worry, Bobby, it's not going to happen for a long, 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 long time. And I actually could feel, in some sense, intuitively, the kindness that they were trying to tell me, that they were trying to, but I knew that they were trying to protect me and that they weren't telling me the truth. I wasn't angry with them. I didn't have an issue over that. I, you know, while my par parents have a tradition of kind of hiding up things. We can talk about that another time. <laughs> But unfortunately, they couldn't hide from the situations that unfolded in the next few years that further re-emphasized this truth. For I had a younger brother named Buddy who uh, was born with Tay-Sachs disease, it's a genetic disease, and he died when he was around two and he shared the room with me, my younger brother. And then not so soon after that, within the next year or so, my best friend Ellen, who lived across the street, went into a diabetic coma in the middle of the night and died. And then, actually, a couple of years later, my grandpa, Ben, who lived downstairs from me, who I really considered to be one of my first spiritual teachers, died of a heart attack. So by the time I was 10 years old, I had had some significant deaths in my life that were very close to me. And I was, it was really up for me as a young child, what is this life? What is this life? <coughs> This was during the 60s, and the times were a-changing. The Vietnam War, the Beatles grew their hair long. <laughs> grew up outside of Boston. My cousin used to go to Timothy Leary's house, so I wondered what he was doing. <laughs> he didn't tell me at that time. But I was a very confused young person, and Although I went to what they would consider to be a good school outside of Boston, it was really focused on reading and writing and arithmetic, and it really didn't make much sense to me. I was really up for me about this life, and yet I really hadn't found any answers and was just pretty confused and, and lost. Well, I somehow managed, after I graduated high school and saw that all my friends went to college, and I didn't even think about college, that maybe I should go. And I liked downhill skiing, and I luckily got accepted to a college in northern Vermont where I could go skiing. <laughs> and after flunking out in my second year uh, and then being readmitted back on warning, I decided f for some reason that maybe I should take a look and see what the school's really offering. Maybe there is something of interest here that I would um, look at, because I really was quite lost. And this, on the course program, there was this class that said Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, and Zen. So, hmm, this sounds interesting. And, you know, it's very interesting. And we look back in my draw to the East, I can remember as a young child always going, we kept a kosher home, so we would never bring Chinese food to the house, but we could go to Chinese restaurants. It was kind of like our <laughs> rationalizing we could do that. But I always saw... <laughs> I always saw in Chinese restaurants that it was actually a very different vibe than Howard Johnson's. <laughs> Howard Johnson's is like Denny's, if you don't know about Howard Johnson's. And the waiters and waitresses had a, had a, a different type of, there was a different vibe. And there was all these, you know, icons and pictures and the food tasted good. There was something there that, that really was intriguing to me. And I think that was kind of, that's, I think that's why I ended up taking that class, Hinduism, <laughs> Buddhism, Taoism, and Zen. Hmm. And the first book that we were assigned was the Tao Te Ching by Latsu. And I was reading through this book and really enjoying this. And 
Then I came to epigram number 47, and it said something like this. There's no need to look outside your window for everything you need to know is inside you. And when I read that, I couldn't believe it. It was as if I was clobbered by a redwood tree and woke up because I realized that I had been looking in the wrong direction. I'd been looking outside of myself for answers, and this was inviting me to look inside. And I had never heard of that type of idea before, believe it or not. I, I just, this was revolutionary, this idea of moving inside, looking inside myself. It began a journey that I've been traveling ever since this journey going inside ourselves. And it's, you know, it's interesting, this journey inside ourselves, because there was actually a, a poem written in the year 399 A.D. That's a long time ago, 399. It's by St. Augustine. A lot of things have changed since the year 399. We don't have any iPhones <laughs> back then. But anyway, St. Augustine says, people travel to wonder at the height of the mountains. People wonder at the huge waves of the seas. People wonder at the long courses of the rivers and at the vast compass of the ocean. People wonder at the circular motion of the stars, and then they walk right past themselves without ever wondering. And they walk right past themselves without ever wondering. It's kind of a haunting poem, but... When I think of it, I was kind of lived in a dream world till my junior year in, um, in college. And even the story of the Buddha, that's, I love the story of the Buddha. Why did the Buddha hit the road? Because he realized that things are impermanent. And I sometimes think about, this has got to be just some type of a mythological story. How could someone not realize that there's old age, disease, and death till the age of 29? But then when I think about myself, how much I lived in, in kind of a dream world till my middle 20s, and maybe some of us live a dream world our whole entire lives. But for whatever reason, at the age of 29, the Siddhartha Gautama, before he became a Buddha, woke up from this dream world and saw these heavenly messages that Anna and I believe Hari were referring to, the messages that there's illness, there's aging, there's death. These are things that we cannot escape from. And what I love about the story of the Buddha is that it was because of his realization of impermanence, of death, separation, and illness. It was those things that catapulted him in a sense of deep urgency to understand the meaning of life. And actually, in Pali language, which is the ancient language of the Buddhists, they have some great words. One word can fill up pages. But this one word is called samweka. And samweka means when you have the awareness that death could come at any moment, it catapults you into a state of such urgency that the only thing that makes any sense is to try to understand the meaning of life. And Siddhartha Gautama had that in spades. Even though he had everything, when he realized that everything that he had was one day going to shift and change and that his, that his wife, that the kingdom, that all his possessions, everything was going to come and go at that point, he realized he needed to do something else. There's a very powerful reflection that, that I actually practice with nearly every day. It's called the five remembrances. This helps us to work along our path of awakening. And it says, I am of the nature to grow old, and I cannot escape from growing old. I am of the nature to have ill health, and I cannot escape having ill health. I am of the nature to die, and I cannot escape from death. All that is dear to me, everyone I love, are of the nature of change, and I cannot escape being separated from them. And the last is my deeds are my closest companions. I am the beneficiary of my deeds, my deeds are the ground on which I stand. Sometimes it's 
hard for us to believe that death really will happen. There's actually a Hindu proverb that says that everyone thinks everyone else is going to die and not me. Jane Kenyon writes in her poem, The Otherwise, I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. I ate cereal, sweet milk, and a ripe, flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to the birch wood, and all morning I did the work that I love. And at noon I lied down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. We ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls and planned another day just like this day, but one day I know it will be otherwise. Hard for us to take that in. The Buddha embarked upon a journey of awakening to discover awakening. And that awakening is not far away from us. It's inside us. And this type of teaching is actually in perennial in many different spiritual traditions. And actually, a, a Christian chaplain friend of mine sent me this poem from St. Isaac of Nineveh, who lived in the 7th century in Iraq. And he says, Be at peace with your own being, and then heaven and earth will be at peace with you. Enter eagerly into the treasure house that is within you, and you'll see the things that are in heaven. There's one single entry. This ladder that leads to the kingdom is hidden inside you. So dive. Dive into yourself, and there you will discover the stairs by which to ascend. Beautiful, huh? Diving into yourself. If we want to know about life, we look inside us. Now Hafiz, he says it in a very funny way. Hafiz is this wild man, ecstatic lover of the divine, a wild man Sufi. I love Hafiz. <laughs> He's part of my tribe. Not many teachers in this world, he says, can give you as much enlightenment in one year as sitting all alone for three days in your closet. That would certainly do. <laughs> That means not leaving. You better get a few, a friend to help you with a few sandwiches and go get yourself a chamber pot. And no reading in there or no writing poems. Uh-uh, that would be cheating. Let's aim for the high 360-degree detox. <laughs> However, the sitting alone is not recommended if you are normally sedated or have been under the supervision of a doctor for your brain. But dear one, don't let Hafiz fool you. There is a ruby buried here. There's a ruby inside here. When we look inside, though, and I think many of us, I mean, of course, in our interviews, and we're hearing that sometimes it's not a pretty picture. It's not easy working on ourselves, and because we're being still and we're taking away a lot of our distractions, we get a chance to sit with perhaps unfinished business, old wounds, different feelings. There's lots going on here. There's those that are grieving about loss of loved ones. There's those that are feeling such deep levels of insufficiency. And, and there's lots of pain. And as we bring our mindfulness, it only seems to get bigger. And there's a reason, perhaps, that that happens. is because we're actually stopping and not distracting ourselves. And because we are turning on the light of awareness, we can get a chance to actually see more clearly what it is that's going on there. So I want to offer you some wise words from a Christian mystic for our comfort. Francis Fenelon lived in the 1600s. He says, as the light of awareness increases we may see ourselves to be worse than we thought. We are amazed at our form of blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of our heart a whole swarm of shameful feelings like filthy reptiles crawling from a hidden cave. Catch the Middle Age language. We never could have believed that we had harbored such things, and we stand aghast as we watch them appear. But while our faults diminish, the light by which we see them waxes brighter. We at times can be filled with horror, but please bear in mind 
for your comfort. That we only perceive the malady when the cure begins. So bear in mind for your comfort. We can only perceive the malady when the cure begins. Last night, Howie talked with us about the noble truths and particularly talking about dukkha, dukkha, so suffering, dissatisfactoriness, birth, aging, illness, being around those you don't like, death, so forth. There's a big list of dukkha dukkhas. <laughs> and there's causes. And Last night, there was discussion about causes, that there's a cause for these dukkhas, this wanting, this grasping. And of course, it's opposite, it's aversion. There's so much energy that goes into wanting and pushing away. I'm sure that you've discovered in your meditation. And you know, just the other day, I was sitting, you know, and I've been having some problems with my knee, and all of a sudden, I was sitting, and, and I felt good. And I became aware that I felt good. And then I got scared that it was going to go away. And then I was trying to hold that feeling good. And as I was holding it, it was slipping away and my knee was beginning to hurt. And then I was filled with aversion. Such is the nature of the mind. Sometimes we think, well, I'm a really good meditator. Then all of a sudden I think, oh, I'm thinking I'm a really good meditator. Oh, I'm the worst meditator in the world. <laughs> This is our mind. If we could actually bottle this energy, we wouldn't have an energy crisis. The amount of energy that is put into our wanting and grasping, our wanting to push away, it's enormous. And it's kind of powerful to reflect upon just how much of our life is around going after what we want and pushing away what we don't want. And of course, there is something kind of natural for that. Like, I, of course, I don't want to be around something that I don't want. And yet, at times, is there more to life than just this? Actually, a friend of mine who's a psychologist that began studying mindfulness, she once remarked to me very cleverly that uh, she had noticed that her mind often worked in two modes of operation. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, yeah, my mind's either rehearsing or it's rehashing. Can anybody relate to that? How much energy is spent on rehearsing and rehashing? Kabir, he says, friend, tell me what I can do about this world that I hold on to and it keeps spinning out. I gave up my sewn clothes and I wore a robe, but one day I noticed that the cloth was well woven, so I bought some burlap but I still throw it elegantly over my left shoulder. I pull back my sexual longings, and now I discover I'm angry a lot. I gave up rage, and now I notice I'm greedy all day. I worked hard at dissolving the greed, and now I'm proud of myself. When the mind wants to break its link with the world, it still at times holds on to one thing. It's amazing, though, when we have an experience of sitting and being with wanting mind and create enough space with our mindfulness practice to give it space and to observe the wanting, 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 watching it fall away. And sometimes it's very interesting as far as the practice goes. Take a look at your mind and your emotional state when you're in place of wanting and take a look at your mind and heart when that wanting has been released, and it's not there. We might discover that that moment of the wanting falling away is an incredible moment of freedom and space. We spin and spin into these worlds of aversion and grasping. The Buddha talked about that these are motivated and driven by these three roots that were referred to, and I'm just very grateful for Anna and Howie because they really, in the last two nights, have really encapsulated the heart of the Buddhist teachings. The first teaching is of the Four Noble Truths, the turning of the wheel of Dharma, the Dharma Chakra Pavatana Sutta, 
And Anna was talking about the three marks of existence, which was the second sutta that the Buddha ever taught, the Anatta-Lakana Sutta, the sutta of the discourse on the three marks of existence of dissatisfactoriness, or as John Kabat-Zinn would say, difficulties happen. Or I could even say a worse word, but I won't. And <laughs> things change, things are impermanent. Don't take it personally. We don't have this sense of control. If there was a sense of some self really here, then self could say, don't get sick, don't get old, keep my comfortable position going. But you can see there's a certain type of incontrollability. What fuels these aversions and graspings, and you know, there's the graspings on wanting something, but there's also the powerful dukkhas of the grasping of wanting to be someone. How much energy have we put into wanting to be seen, to be known, to be accepted, to be this, to be that? Then we begin with the false misconception that we define who we are by what it is that we do or what it is that we've written or what it is that we said or so forth. But these underlying forces that cause these graspings and aversions are the Buddhists call the, the are motivated by these um, three kilesas or three defilements. Simply said, greed, hatred, and ignorance. It's said in the suttas that there's no fire hotter than greed. There's no ice colder than hatred. And there's no fog thicker than ignorance or unawareness. And where do these greed, hatred, and ignorance exist. The Buddha was incredibly thorough and described how that these exist in what is seen, what is smelt, what is tasted, what is heard, what is felt, and what is thought in the mind states. How we mentioned last night about we can get caught into our conditioned uh, worlds of our lives, our habitual patterns. Margaret Wheatley, she writes, I know that we notice what we notice because of who we are, and we create ourselves by what we choose to notice. And once this work of self-authorship has begun, we inhabit the world we've created. We self-seal. We don't notice anything except those things that confirm that about what we already think about who we already are. When we succeed in moving outside of our normal processes of self-reference and can look upon ourselves with self-awareness, then we have a chance of changing. We can break the sail. We can notice something new. Very difficult at times to notice new things. Consider this. Our intentions, which is actually from the Buddhist practice, the intentions, our volition, is the seed of how all everything begins. So our intentions shape our thoughts and our words. Our thoughts and words mold our actions. Our thoughts, words, and actions shape our behaviors. Our behaviors sculpt our bodily expressions. Our bodily expressions fashion our character. Our character hardens into what we look like. And as someone once said, you get the face you deserve by the time you're 50. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. <laughs> but sometimes you can notice with very old and wise people, they look like babies. There's a beauty to them. The heart of intention carries, can harden into character. So our emphasis in Mindfulness is to pay closer attention to our intention, to our thoughts, to our words, to our actions. And sometimes when we're not paying much attention, we can get into big trouble. We can get into paranoid thinking. Philip Lopati says, We who are your closest friends feel the time has come to tell you that every Thursday we've been meeting as a group to devise ways to keep you in perpetual uncertainty, frustration, discontent, and torture by neither loving you as much as you want nor cutting you adrift. Your analyst is, is on it, in on it, plus your boyfriend and ex-husband, 
and we've pledged to disappoint you for as long as you need us. It goes on and on. We can carry these fantasies, just like Howie was talking last night about uh, the Vipassana romances, the Vipassana vendettas, and the Buddha talks about it in the Dhammapada in the very first lines of this beautiful uh, sutra of the Buddha, talks about that a mind is the creator of our own heavens and our own hells through our own very thoughts. That is a very powerful statement. The mind is the creator of our own heavens and our own hells through our own thoughts. We create our own heavens and our own hells. We can create construction worlds, novels. Take this uh, woman that Valerie Cox describes, that a woman was waiting at an airport one night with several long hours before her flight. She hunted for a book in the airport shop and bought a bag of cookies and found a place to drop. She was engrossed in her book, but happened to see that the man beside her, as bold as could be, grabbed a cookie or two from the bag between. (laughs) My goodness. When she tried to ignore, to avoid a scene, she munched cookies and watched the clock as this gutsy cookie thief slowly diminished her stock. She was getting more irritated as the minutes ticked by, thinking if I wasn't so nice, I'd blacken his eye. With each cookie she took, he took one too. And when there was only one left, she wondered, what would he do? With a smile on his face and a nervous laugh, he took the last cookie and he broke it in half. (laughs) He offered her half as he ate the other and she snatched it from him and thought, oh brother, this guy has some nerve and he's also rude and why he didn't even show any gratitude. She had never known when she had been so galled and sighed with relief when her flight was called. She gathered her belongings and headed for the gate Refusing to look back at that thieving ingrate, she boarded the plane and sank in her seat and then sought her book, which was almost complete. And as she reached into her bag, she gasped with surprise, for there was her bag of cookies in front of her eyes. (laughs) If mine are here, she moaned with despair, then the others were his and he tried to share. Too late to apologize, she realized with grief that she was the rude one, the ingrate, the thief. (laughs) Such is the nature of our perceptions and how we see things and the realities that we construct. With mindfulness, we can begin to break the seal, break the pattern. Viktor Frankl, a wonderful psychiatrist, concentration camp survivor, pioneer of existential psychotherapy, wrote a beautiful book called Man's Search for Meaning. He has this very beautiful line. I often use it in our mindfulness stress reduction programs. He talks about a space. And he says that between the stimulus and the response, there is a space. And in that space lies our freedom to choose differently. Between the stimulus and the response, there is a space. And within that space lies our freedom to choose differently. Yet sometimes when we're on automatic pilot and we're not being present and mindful, we don't see what it is that we're doing. We have a lot of impulsive reactivity. There's a beautiful poem that speaks to the possibility of change when we become mindful, and it's called Autobiography in Five Short Chapters by Patricia Nelson. It says in chapter one, I'm walking down the street, there's a deep hole in the sidewalk, and I fall in, and I'm lost. And it takes a long time, but I finally do get out. In chapter two, I'm walking down that same street, there's a deep hole in the sidewalk, and I fall in again. And I know where I am now, and I see where I am, and I get out immediately. In chapter three, I'm walking down that same street, there's a deep hole in the sidewalk, I fall in again, it's a habit, you know, this is kind of what I do. (laughs) Anybody recognize chapter three? Many of us. Chapter 4, noticing the space between the stimulus and response. I'm walking down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around the hole. 
chapter 5, I walked down another street. The potentialities of choosing freedom when we notice that we're grasping. You know, we all can just grasp our hand right now. And what does it feel like when it opens? To try it. What does it feel like to hold it tight and then to open it? That close to freedom is at times, yet at times we don't see that. And, you know, I can find in my own house, uh, you know, I don't have a very large house, but, you know, there's a few bedrooms, there's enough space for us to move around, but I'll find myself and my two boys in one corner in the house, button heads, and there's plenty of space. Sometimes we don't see the space. So our practice in mindfulness is to become more attentive of our own reactions and habitual patterns that we can begin to change. Somebody was asking about, how do I bring this into my life? And so sometimes we'll really describe mindfulness as a way of life. And actually, the, the retreat really is your life. The retreat, the retreat doesn't end when you leave Spirit Rock. Your life is the retreat. And the more that we, in some ways, really get that and bring our awareness and mindfulness into our everyday life, our practice will grow. Sometimes we can say that our, uh, this practice of mindfulness is really a way of life, but we can divide it into two aspects. One is a formal practice where we're sitting, doing our practice, and the informal practice that we've also been teaching here is bringing our mindfulness into our day-to-day -day activities. When we're walking and eating and showering and all these different activities, we can also bring our awareness to. We really want to invite you to continue to bring awareness into your day-to-day -day life, to make mindfulness a way of life. And it's amazing if we begin to develop practices of reminding ourselves to stop and to become present. And sometimes in our classes we talk about the acronym STOP, S-T-O-P. What does that stand for? S stands to stop, T stands to take a breath, O stands to observe, and P to proceed on with what you're doing. And many of us discover when we actually stop in the midst of a busy day, and take a breath, we might realize that our shoulders are up higher than our ears, or maybe we're filled with anxiety. Who knows what's going on because we're not even paying any attention to what's happening inside our own body and mind. So we really want to invite you to bring this mindfulness, let it grow into your life. And also, when you think about it and really consider the only moment that we're ever really alive in is now, is this moment. Here we are, we're sitting in the room, we're having this, you know, you're listening to me, and this is it. This is it. Hopefully there will be a future. We don't know. The past is gone. Why not put our energy into the now, into being present, into looking very closely, whether we are very, maybe holding very tightly and pushing away with a lot of aversion or grasping onto something because we want it so much and noticing what does it feel like in the body-mind? What does it feel like? So in this practice of mindfulness, we're beginning to turn into ourselves, beginning to sense into the body and mind. The Buddha taught specific practices to help us to go in to this body and mind. And it's found in the foundations of mindfulness. The very first foundation that the Buddha taught about was the mindfulness of the body and We've been working with that the last few days, with the breath, with the body sensations. But within the section of the mindfulness of the body, there's six distinct practices that the Buddha is recommending us to practice. The mindfulness of the breath, mindfulness of our postures, whether we're standing, lying, sitting, walking, mindfulness of our daily activities, clear comprehension, understanding what we're doing when we're doing it. Then there's specific practices that move even deeper into the body. There's a practice called the 32 parts of the body meditation. There's a practice also called the mindfulness of the four primary elements that exist within the body of solidity, liquidity, motion, and temperature. There's also this last practice of a mindfulness of death practice. It's a very powerful practice where there's nine contemplations on the various decomposition uh, factors of a corpse beginning from the first day of death until the body turns into dust. Now, I know that might sound pretty gross to hear that. But I also really appreciate the wisdom of the Buddha because I'm, I'm kind of like that Hindu proverb. I think everyone else is going to die and not me. 
But if I actually got to hang out with a body that died and actually watched it turn into dust, it would really be big proof. <laughs> it would be big proof. And it's a powerful practice for us to contemplate on our deaths. And I trust for some of us here, this has perhaps come up. Perhaps this is what's fueling us being here. Turning into our hearts, facing our fears, is very courageous and very vulnerable work. It's very noble work. I consider the work that we're doing of the, of the most noblest of work that anyone could do. And at times it is a difficult work. We face ourselves. We sit within this hall of mirrors, if you will. And when I lived in, I, I at one point in my life lived in a monastery for a number of years, Buddhist monastery. And I used to joke with uh, a friend of mine that living in the monastery was like living inside, pardon the language, a shit accelerator. And the sense that things were coming up all the time. Not easy to be in an environment where we're constantly working on ourselves, noticing what's arising. So, like here too, on the outside it looks nice. I was mentioning this earlier, maybe the other day, with the, the deer and the turkeys and the pastoral setting. But inside here, a little different story. And of course, when we hear in, in the interviews, we know that it's a lot of acceleration of things because we're bringing the light of awareness to what's going on there and we're seeing that much more. It's amplifying in some ways. But we have a choice. We can run or we can hide or we can turn into. And I know it might feel very paradoxical to turn into what's happening. Just like it was very paradoxical for me when I was a new driver in the Boston area when I was 16 and I would be driving in the winter and snow and I'd get in a skid and I would desperately turn my wheels away from the skid to try to get away from the skid, but the more that I turned away, the more I skidded out. One day I was telling my dad about this and he said, you know, Bob, if you want to get out of the skid, you've got to turn into it. And I heard that and I thought that was crazy. I didn't want to turn into the direction that I was scared of. I wanted to turn away, so I didn't believe him. I kept on turning away, kept on spinning out. One day I thought I had nothing else to lose. I remembered him telling me this, and I turned my car a little bit towards the skid, and lo and behold, my car began to straighten out, and I couldn't believe it. It was a revelation. I turned more into the skid, and my car straightened out completely. And it was such a powerful metaphor for me for this sense of turning into my fear, turning into my pain. Not easy. But what we can, there's an old Grateful Dead song that says, you can run, but you can't hide. What would it be like to begin to turn into what's happening? Jennifer Wellwood says in this beautiful poem called Unconditional, whatever you flee from will pursue you. Whatever you welcome will transform you. She says, willing to experience aloneness, I discover connection everywhere. Turning to face my fears, I meet the warrior who lives within. Opening to my losses, I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end. Each condition I flee from pursues me, while each condition I welcome transforms me. difficult for us to turn into our own pain, physical and mental. How do we work with emotional pain that comes up? How do we work with physical pain that comes up? I really very much love that acronym that's being taught here of RAIN, recognition, the 
awareness, the allowance, the acceptance, the investigation, the non-identifying aspect. So how do we begin to turn into what it is that we don't want to look at or to feel? And I know at times it might feel almost counterintuitive, turning into my pain. And yet perhaps we've seen over and over again those that begin to turn in their pain can begin to transform themselves. And one of the things that I really want to you know, get into some nuts and bolts to talk about is that we hear the word acceptance a lot. And sometimes it's related to meditation practice and to other things. You need to accept your illness, you need to accept this, you need to accept that. And there's a few different definitions of acceptance, and I really want to define what that means because it's an important definition on how to hold and be with our pain, whether it's physical or mental or emotional. And when we talk about acceptance, and actually, I would actually prefer to use the word acknowledging rather than accepting because acceptance often can imply that somehow I'm giving myself some message that I need to be okay with what's here. But the truth might be, I'm not okay with what's there. I'm not okay with my anger, my grief, my shame. You know, maybe someday I will be, and I hope that will happen. And in our practice, as we're holding and working within ourselves, when we come up against some pain, we can begin to work with acknowledging its presence. So that acknowledging factor means that even if it's something that we don't like, don't wish, don't want, we can even acknowledge, ah, here's not wanting, here's not liking, here's pain. I find this to be very empowering in my work with people living with, with pain and illness, working in the hospitals. There's such an empowering thing that like, I never knew that I could actually just acknowledge to myself how much I hated this pain because I kept on thinking that I had to somehow be okay with it. And the, perhaps the first step towards moving into a place of acceptance is the first fact of acknowledging things as they are, which is one of the great teachings of the Buddha, the acknowledging things as they are. And then we get the whole story about letting go. Now, I loved Achan Sumedho's teachings last night, and I've actually been working with a little bit of today when I'm seeing my wanting, let go, let go, let go. But I also want to say that, and, and how he inferred about this later, that if, if let go is too hard of a word, let be. And let be might be a user-friendly word when we're coming up against something that's very uncomfortable within us. Can we acknowledge its presence? Can we let it be? Can we let it do whatever it needs to do? If we knew how to let go, perhaps we would have done that five years ago. And that's so easy to let go. Though it is a very powerful practice. How do we let be? How do we acknowledge things as they are? One of the things that we find that's very helpful in our practice is when, if there's emotional pain arising or physical pain, that we can begin to meet it with awareness and acknowledge this is what's present. And we can begin to develop a quality of resiliency or equanimity. It's one of the factors of enlightenment. This factor of being able to be with things as they are. Quite honestly, when I sit and meditate, I really take the commitment to not expect or want anything. Let me just see what comes. And of course, I, as I described to you a little bit earlier, I do have my preferences when I'm sitting feeling really comfortable. Oh, I like it, I want it. So of course I'm susceptible to all of these things. But my intention is just to be with what's here. I may direct it to the breath or to sounds or the body sensations, but it's a sense of not trying to get anywhere other than where it is that I am. I find that to be very, very helpful, very helpful. I consider myself to be in some ways, and I'm going to invite you to consider, to be an internal meteorologist. And what would it be like just to simply observe the weather? And as we've been sitting here in Spirit Rock for the last few days, we've been noticing the weather systems are coming in, the weather systems are going out, the weather's changing all the time. And in some ways, if we can develop a practice where we begin to just watch the show, watch the Bob show, watch the Howie show, the Anna show, the whatever <laughs> show that we're watching, and begin to just see how that these mind states arise, these body states arise, sounds come, sounds go, sensations, so forth, all in a state of change, we can begin to develop some more balance. So I really want to see if we can invite in these qualities of acknowledging, letting things be as they are. Sometimes I like an image of like sitting like a non-volcanic mountain. It's a powerful image. This mountain through the ages remains motionless and still in the midst of the weather systems. 
comes it goes. Or perhaps, as we were talking about in giving space to the mind, that the sky is a wonderful metaphor. The sky gives plenty of room, even for category one through five storms. It's the space of the sky that enables storms to dissipate because it doesn't bounce off it. It just gives space and room. In the same way, if we begin to give space to our um, mind states, physical states, I guess I don't have it, um, we will um, potentially create a condition where they will come and go. I was looking for a piece of paper. If I had a big piece of paper here and I drew a dot right in the middle, and I said, what's this? Many of us here would be focused on that dot and say the dot, and we neglect to see, oh, I'm seeing all the space around the dot. We get caught in the dot. And in our practice of mindfulness, we're trying to give some space to what's present. If we give space, things will run their course. The tricky thing is after we practice for a little bit, even after a while, we definitely come up with certain ideas about meditation. We think, ooh, just got done sitting. This was a good one. But then the danger is in the next sitting, you could have a bad one. (laughs) And then in the next sitting after that, I want to go get a good one. And the meditation becomes one of striving, trying to get some particular result. And it can lead us into a lot of trouble. A lot of problems. So what would it be like to just sit and just observe the weather? It comes, it goes. We have aspirations, though. We have an idea. I want to be the best meditator in the world. I want to be made of the right stuff in meditation. So perhaps this could be you. If you start the day without caffeine or pet pills, if you can be cheerful, ignoring aches and pains, if you can resist complaining and boring people with your troubles, if you can eat the same food every day and be grateful for it, if you can understand when loved ones are too busy to give you time, you are made of the right meditative stuff, perhaps. <laughs> if you can overlook when people take things out on you, when through no fault of yours something goes wrong, if you can take criticism and blame without resentment, if you can face the world without lies and deceit, if you can conquer tension without medical help, if you can relax without liquor, you're made of the right meditation stuff. If you can sleep without the aid of drugs, if you can do all of these things, then you must be the family dog. (laughs) So much for the right meditative stuff. But yet we have this idea to be made of the right stuff. If I just sit all night, if I just have it in a certain way. So we talk about not too tight, not too loose. Balancing the factors. Balancing these factors. Talk about in the seven factors of enlightenment, and I won't go into it thoroughly, but this is a beautiful balancing of factors, balancing our mindfulness, our curiosity, our investigation. This, of course, brings upon some energy, effort. May increase that we experience some rapture or joy, resulting in tranquility, concentration, equanimity. I'm running through these very quickly, but these factors are, are balancing factors that help support the mind to become awake, to become clear. And we can grow in precision with our mindfulness, with our investigation, with our energy, with our concentration, with our balance. The third Zen patriarch patriarch says it this way, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. Not easy. Not to have any preferences. And Bhante Gunarutama says that somewhere in this process of meditation, you may come face to face with the sudden realization that you are completely crazy. That your mind is a shrinking madhouse on wheels barreling down the hill utterly out of control. No problem. You're not any crazier than you were yesterday. (laughs) It's always been this way, but we just haven't noticed. It's important to have some sense of levity and kindness in how we hold our practices. Mind is busy. It's creating worlds.
So I'm getting close to finishing. Believe it or not. (laughs) But I'll just say that in our practice of mindfulness, we are using this practice within the four foundations, the mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of sensations, mindfulness of our mind states, the mindfulness of the dharmas, some of the very important universal teachings of the dharmas helping to guide us, the seven factors of enlightenment, the hindrances, and so forth. These foundations of mindfulness is what helps to awaken us into understanding suffering, its causes, and its end. To understand deeply about the impermanent nature of things and what is impermanent at times is definitely dissatisfactory because we can't hold on to it. And then that sense of the lack of control, the sense of, of lack of self, of substance, of controlling what's here. So we work with this practice to penetrate, to understand these teachings for ourselves in our own experience. So I'd like to maybe just end with a teaching from my teacher, Tungpulu Sero. And he offered many teachings as he traveled back and forth to America. And this was his very last teaching, and he died a few months later. And I believe he was wanting us to have a taste of what it means to feel free. And so he brought this practice, a very simple practice with the breath. So let us just sit for a moment. Nacero also said, this would be a really good practice to teach people when they're dying. He said, breathing in, in this moment of breathing in, feel what it feels like to have no greed entering into your awareness. And as you breathe out, let there also be no greed. Breathing in and breathing out, no grasping, no greed, no wanting. And the next breath, in and out. What would it be like as we breathe in and out in the experience of no aversion, no hatred, no ill will in this breath in, this breath out. And the next breath, breathing in and out, no ignorance. No delusion, clarity of mind. You know you're breathing in and breathing out. We could say this is the taste of freedom, and it can exist in this moment. With the breath in and out, no wanting mind. With the breath in and out, no aversion mind. With the breath in and out, No ignorance, clarity, clearness of mind. May all beings be at peace.
Thank you all very much. And um, I know that sometimes people, ooh, can you send me that?